What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Welcome back. Tom Hartman here with you. On the line with us is uh, Andrew Yang. He's an entrepreneur. He's the founder of Venture for America. He's the author of a new book, The War on Normal People, The Truth About America's Disappearing Jobs and Why Universal Basic Income is Our Future. And perhaps most interesting, he's running for president on the Democratic ticket for 2020. His website, Yang, Y-A-N-G-2020.com. Andrew Yang, uh, and his Twitter handle is Andrew Yang VFA. Uh, Andrew, welcome to the program. Oh, thanks for having me, Tom. It's a pleasure to be here. Thanks so much for joining us. I was reading your book earlier today. Uh, in fact, we read it as one of our book reports here on the program. Fascinating stuff. You've really clearly, accurately diagnosed the problem in America, at least many dimensions of it. First of all, universal basic income. Why is that a solution to many of the challenges that we're facing, the structural challenges that we're facing in the American workforce and labor force right now? And the follow-on to that will be, and then why base a presidential campaign? on that. Sure. So I spent the last seven years helping entrepreneurs create jobs and grow businesses throughout the Midwest and the South. And I realized that technology is going to blast away millions of American jobs in addition to the manufacturing jobs that have already been lost. And in my opinion, led directly to Donald Trump's election in 2016. If you look at it, we automated away 4 million manufacturing jobs in Michigan, Ohio, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, Missouri, and Iowa, all the swing states that Donald Trump needed to win. And unfortunately, we're about to do the same thing to millions of retail workers. 30% of malls are going to close in the next five years. Call center workers, fast food workers, and most disastrously truck drivers. Being a trucker is the most common job in 29 states. My friends in Silicon Valley believe that we are going to be reducing these jobs and other jobs very, very quickly in the next number of years. And so a universal basic income is, to me, the most direct and effective and expedient solution that we can bring to bear that's going to help make this economy work better for millions of Americans. So let's describe that. A universal basic income means what? Well, universal basic income is a catch-all label for a policy uh, where... Every citizen or uh, adult in a society gets a certain amount of money, free and clear, no questions asked, to pay your bills, start a business, go to school, do whatever you want. Uh, And so my plan, the Freedom Dividend, would give every American adult, ages 18 on up, $1,000 a month 
free and clear. And people who are listening to this know where a lot of that money would go. It would go to car repairs, child care, tutoring services, the occasional night out, home repairs you've been putting off. That money would get pumped right back into our Main Street economy, would grow the consumer economy by about 12%, and would create several million jobs around the country. So that, to me, is a sort of dramatic solution that we need to bring to help rebalance the economy, because as you read uh, from my book, the economy has become dangerously unbalanced in favor of big corporations and capital interests. Now, you know, Milton Friedman actually recommended something like this, uh, you know, back in the day, uh, the earned income tax credit, basically, a tax credit. This is kind of a variation on the same thing, I suppose. But the critique of the universal basic income is that it's not addressing the actual structural problems with America, that it's not taking on this ownership society, basically capitalism. Richard Wolf, for example, the economist would say, uh, you know, really the big challenge is having people own their own businesses, is having worker-owned co-ops, things like that. You know, direct assaults on capitalism itself. What do you think? Well, I love entrepreneurship. I love uh, cooperative businesses. I love collective ownership. And the best way we can make that happen is by putting buying power into the hands of more Americans so that people in towns and communities around the country can take cooperative ownership of more of the businesses in their communities. The tough part, though, is we, can't, we don't have a time machine. We can't turn the clock back. We can't undo <laughs> like a lot of what has happened mm-hmm. over the last number of decades. And so the best way to get economic buying power into the hands of Americans uh, directly, and, and this is a frustration I have with many Democrats, where uh, I think many Democrats agree that the economy has gotten out of whack and is not serving people very well, but they still don't trust people. <laughs> like they, they still don't want to actually put money into people's hands. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there's this grasping for solutions as they go. Maybe if we put money into education programs or, right. or retraining programs like that, that will help solve the problem. Well, and Republicans will just say if, if you give people money, they're just going to goof off. Yeah, which the the data does not show that. I mean, I'm a very uh, evidence-driven guy. But people who are fans of cooperative ownership models, like I'm a fan too. And the best way to make that happen is through something like a universal basic income. So your presidential campaign, I'm guessing most of our listeners have never heard of Andrew Yang, or if they have, it's in the context of, you know, Venture for America or your book, The War on Normal People. Why run for president? Well, if you look at the magnitude of the problems uh, in front of us, where we're in the third inning of the greatest economic and technological transformation in the history of the country, and the third inning has brought us Donald Trump, our government is literally shut down as we speak, our institutions are failing right and left, and we do not have a whole lot of time because we are decades behind in addressing these challenges. If you believe my friends in Silicon Valley that we're only five to ten years away from robot trucks hitting the highway, we do not have a lot of time to rewrite the rules of the economy. And so if you were to want to get this done in the next, let's call it, less than five years, then your range of options to make it happen are very limited. And running for president struck me as the best approach that would have a reasonable chance of succeeding. I have your newsletter here, uh, your campaign newsletter that people can get over at yang2020.com. And I spent Friday in New Hampshire visiting the Fosse family in, in Goffstown, New Hampshire, the recipients of the first freedom dividend. I thought the freedom dividend was a proposal. You said that they're actually getting it. You tell me about that. And how's it working out in New Hampshire as you're campaigning for president? Sure. So uh, as an entrepreneur, you want to put your money where your mouth is. So if I think that Americans getting $1,000 a month would be good for families and, and individuals, then 
I should do that. So I had a call with the FEC to make sure that all was kosher, that I could give a gift to individuals and families uh, out of my own pocket. And they said, as long as it's your own money and they're not required to do anything, then uh, have at it. So uh, we identified um, potential recipients and families in New Hampshire late last year. And then at the very beginning of this year, we chose the Fosse family, and they're receiving $1,000 a month. And I'm happy to say they're already feeling like it's relieved stress in their family and that um, they're positioned to, to make more of it this year. So I've committed to do the same thing in Iowa. And you're going to love this, Tom. A family in Georgia just said that they want to fund a freedom dividend for another family in South Carolina. Hmm. Um, so Americans love this so much where they realize that $1,000 a month would make a tremendous difference in the lives of millions of Americans, and we can completely afford it. We're the richest and most advanced economy in the history of the world, and our economy is up to $19 trillion, up $4 trillion in the last 10 years alone. So this is eminently affordable. And uh, it's a thrill when I got that message. I mean, imagine hearing from this family in Atlanta that they want to do the same thing. Does this, though, so become the next GoFundMe? I mean, does is, is this just become like a, you know, uh, well, here's one more place that you can get a little bit of help in this economy that sucks as a consequence of 40 years of Reaganomics? Well, what I'm proposing is that we do it for every single American. Because if you look at GoFundMe, it's either heartwarming or heartbreaking, depending upon your perspective. Yep. Where you have Americans who can't pay medical bills, so they're turning to the community. I mean, that's messed up, truly. And so my plan is not for individuals, you know, just like a handful of people to get the freedom dividend. It's for if everyone. I can afford it for yeah. everyone. I so so the like, question is, and, and for everybody. forgive my interrupting, but we're going to hit a break here in a minute or so. So the Republican mantra, and I'm sure a lot of Democrats, too, will be saying, OK, you know, thousand dollars a month that, you know, it's a start. Where's the money going to come from? Sure. Well, the big change we need to make is right now our income tax system is going to be very, very bad at harnessing the gains from new technologies in the hands of companies like Amazon and Google and Facebook and Uber. So what we need to do is we need to join every other advanced economy and have a value-added tax. Uh, and a value-added tax would give the American public a slice of every Amazon transaction and every Google search. And because our economy is now so vast, a value-added tax at even half the European level would generate $800 billion, which, when combined with our existing spending and all the economic growth we'd experience by pumping this money into the economy and all the savings we would be experiencing on things like emergency room health care and incarceration and homelessness services, a value-added tax is a key to enable us to afford a freedom dividend for every American adult. And that's why every other developed country in the world has one, it seems. Uh, we're talking with Andrew Yang, the entre entrepreneur, founder of Venture for America, author of The War on Normal People. Um, Andrew, will you keep us up to date on how your uh, campaign is going? Oh, yeah. And, uh, you know, you just got the newsletter. But I have to say, you asked how things are going in New Hampshire. Things are going incredibly well. Uh, people understand that this economy is broken and we have to make it work for us. Uh, That's great. So, yeah, we'd love to have a conversation with you uh, regularly. Great. Andrew Yang, uh, yang2020.com is the website. Andrew, thank you so much. Good luck. Thanks, Alan. Keep up the great work. Thank you. Good talking with you. And you, too. Our book today is The War on Normal People by Andrew Yang. This is from Chapter 2, How We Got Here, page 12. The Great Displacement didn't arrive overnight. It has been building for decades as the economy and labor markets changed in response to improving technology, financialization, changing corporate norms, and globalization. In the 1970s, when my parents worked at GE and Blue Cloth Blue Shield in upstate New York, 
Their companies provided generous pensions and expected them to stay for decades. Community banks were boring businesses that lent money to local companies for a modest return. Over 20% of workers were unionized. Some economics problems existed. Growth was uneven and inflation periodically high, but income inequality was low. Jobs provided benefits, and Main Street businesses were the drivers of the economy. There were only three television networks, and in my house we watched them on a TV with an antenna that we fiddled with to make the picture clearer. That all seems awfully quaint today. Pensions disappeared for private sector employees years ago. Most community banks were gobbled up by mega banks in the 1990s. Today, five banks control 50% of the commercial banking industry, which is self-mushroomed to the point where finance enjoys about 25% of all corporate profits. Union membership fell by 50%. 94% of the jobs created between 2005 and 2015 were temp or contractor jobs without benefits. People working multiple gigs to make ends meet is increasingly the norm. Real wages have been flat or even declining. The chances that an American born in 1990 will earn more than their parents are down to 50%. For Americans born in 1940, the same figure was 92%. Thanks to Milton Friedman, Jack Welch, and other corporate titans, the goals of large companies began to change in the early 70s and early 1980s. The notion they espoused that a company exists only to maximize its share price became gospel in business schools and boardrooms around the country. Companies were pushed to adopt shareholder value as their sole measuring stick. Hostile takeovers, shareholder lawsuits, and later activist hedge funds served as prompts to ensure the managers were committed to profitability at all costs. On the flip side, CEOs were granted stock options for the first time that wedded their individual gain to the company's share price. The ratio of CEO to worker pay rose from 20 to 1 in 1965 to 271 to 1 in 2016. Benefits were streamlined and reduced, and the relationship between company and employee weakened to become more transactional. Simultaneously, the major banks grew and evolved as Depression-era regulations separating consumer lending and investment banking were abolished. Financial deregulation started under Ronald Reagan in 1980 and culminated in the Financial Services Modernization Act of 1999 under Bill Clinton that really set the banks loose. The securities industry grew 500% as a share of GDP between 1980 and the 2000s, while ordinary bank deposits shrank from 70 to 50%. Financial products multiplied as even Main Street companies were driven to pursue financial engineering to manage their affairs. GE, my dad's old company, and once a beacon of manufacturing, became the fifth biggest financial institution in the country by 2007. With improved technology and new access to global markets, American companies realized they could outsource manufacturing, information technology, and customer service to Chinese and Mexican factories and Indian programmers and call centers. U.S. companies outsourced and offshored 14 million jobs by 2013, many of which had previously been filled by domestic workers at higher wages. This resulted in lower prices, higher efficiencies, and some new opportunities, but also increased pressures on American workers who now had to compete in a global labor pool. Automation started out on farms earlier in the century with tractors and then migrated to factories in the 1970s. Manufacturing employment began to slip around 1978 as wage growth began to fall. Median wages used to go up in lockstep with productivity and GDP growth before diverging sharply in the 1970s. Since 1973, productivity has skyrocketed relative to the hourly compensation of the average wage earner. How workers are compensated and how their companies perform stopped even being aligned over the same period. Even as corporate profitability has soared to record highs, workers are earning less. 
The share of GDP going to wages has fallen from almost 54% in 1970 to 44% in 2013. While the share going to corporate profits went from 4% to 11%. Being a shareholder has been great for your bottom line. Being a worker, not so much. Today, inequality has surged to historic levels with benefits flowing increasingly to the top 1% and 20% of earners due to an aggregation of capital at the top and increased winner-take-all economics. The top 1% have accrued 52% of the real income growth in America since 2009. Technology is a big part of this story as it tends to lead to a small handful of winners. Studies have shown that everyone is less happy in an unequal society even those at the top. The wealthy experience higher levels of depression and suspicion in unequal societies. Apparently being high status is easier when you don't feel bad about it. Companies can now prosper, grow, and mint record profits without hiring many people or increasing wages. Both job creation and wage growth have been weaker than the top line economic growth would suggest since the 1970s. In each of the last several decades, the economy has created lower percentages of new jobs including no new net jobs between 2000 and 2010. Andrew Yang, The War on Normal People. Hey, you know, you're going to start hearing nonstop weight loss commercials everywhere. And every time you do, I want you to think about Riduzone. It's the only weight loss product I endorse and the one that worked for my wife. Louise wanted to lose a little weight last summer. She read about university research and how one molecule helps regulate appetite. Riduzone is designed to boost levels of that one molecule and your metabolism too, so you stop craving the wrong foods like too many holiday sweets and you burn calories faster. With her appetite and cravings under control, she said losing weight was easy. She has more energy on her hikes and she looks amazing. Listen, when diet and exercise aren't enough, get the only weight loss product I endorse, non-prescription, FDA-accepted Riduzone. While supplies last, to use the promo code TOM, T-H-O-M, and receive 30% off a pack of three bottles plus free shipping. Go to Riduzone.com. That's R-I-D-U-Z-O-N-E. R-I-D-U-Zone.com. Riduzone.com. Use the promo code TOM. Riduzone.com. You're listening to Tom Hartman. Those folks who support our program, who help essentially sponsor us on YouTube and on Patreon, uh, have access to content that is generally not available on YouTube or in, you know, anyplace else. The rant this week that we recorded just a few minutes ago, actually, is about how the cell phone companies have been selling your data. And now they swear, double cross your heart and hope to die. Don't worry. We're not going to sell your data anymore. Right. Meanwhile, Gene Shaheen is saying, you know, the drug companies are ripping us off, and at the same time, they're spending billions of dollars on advertising to jack up demand for products that, in many cases, we don't need and are actually harming us. So she's saying, do away with the tax break that they get. Advertising is tax deductible. Do away with that tax deduction. I mean, cool stuff. There's a lot of ways to regulate these companies, and it's so good to see that Congress is actually starting to do something about it. Thank you for supporting Patreon.com slash Tom Hartman. Tom Harbin here with you and Brian in Riverside, Connecticut. Hey, Brian, says here you want to disagree with me. What's up? Well, Tom, I don't necessarily want to disagree with you, but I do want to disagree with Andrew Yang. Autonomous trucks, it'll never happen in the United States. They will try, but it'll never happen. You, I drive an over-the-road truck. I've been several trucks and several drivers with me for 40 years between Salt Lake City and Greenwich, Connecticut, New York. In fact, if you ever had a Idaho potato, I probably brought it. Mm -hmm. Anyways, 
Um, well, here, Brian, here's you know, a possibility, something that they've actually developed they're using right now in China. Uh, and that is where you take a lane of a freeway and you designate this as the trucks only lane. And then you run in that lane about an inch below the top of the asphalt. You just you cut a groove for the 300 miles of the highway or whatever it may be. You cut this groove and you lay a wire in that groove and you electrify that wire and the semi-autonomous vehicles, the driverless trucks essentially, they track that wire. And so it's sort of like a railroad car. It's It's got its own lane. There's no way to into it or out of it unless you're a truck. I agree with you. I, I, I can understand the principle behind it all. But, well, he's you saying know, in five or ten years, we're going to have that here. You've got that in China right now. Let me let me ask you this. Do you want to be anywhere near an 80,000-pound torpedo on the Jersey Turnpike or somewhere? No, that's the, that's the point of giving them their own lanes. Well, you get your own lane, but if something goes wrong, that truck's coming out of that lane. It's coming down the road 53 feet sideways, and it's not stopping. Yeah. And I, they could lock the brakes up. And then, forget about that. The thousand yeah. dollars he's talking about giving to everybody in America, this, that, or whatever. If you have an autonomous car and it's actually working, and something goes wrong, how far do you think that thousand bucks is going to go when you still have to feed a family or whatever? I would say his his theory would be somewhere in the neighborhood of five or six thousand dollars for each person, and then if you're taking that money from somebody who's making it. Well, then we're back to slavery again. Yeah. Well, the money guy B enjoys the benefits. Yeah, I don't. I don't think paying taxes is slavery, but I get your point, Brian. And what he's talking about is, you know, twelve thousand dollars is not enough to live on, and he's not suggesting that people should live on that. He's suggesting that basically it would be an infusion of wealth into, you know, what drives an economy is spending. And this is, you know, classic economics, Adam Smith 101. It's not debt necessarily, although debt-driven spending will right. will stimulate an economy. But basically what, what drives an economy is spending, and uh, which well, is why it was so outrageous when Reagan came out and said, no, what drives an economy is supply, supply-side economy. No, Tom, it's demand-side. Let, let me say this. I worked in the ski industry in Park City, Utah, for years and years and years. And I had many conversations with the head of Snowbird, Alta and Disneyland. Uh, I think it was Eisner or whatever his name was then. Yeah. Anyways, they always talked about the dollar. Now, if you notice, a ski lift ticket is almost the same price as it is to go to Disneyland for a day. Well, now you take a family of four that has to, even if they drive in, even if they're locals, you know, from, from downtown, 125 145 bucks a day at Park City, Utah to go skiing. You take a family of four, that's a $600 nut to crack. Before you even had lunch, before you had dinner, before you anything else, right? I, I get all that, so, Brian. I don't see what that has to do with what we're talking about here. What I'm saying is that the universal basic income is a demand stimulus, and just just like the just like the uh, you know in the year after the the Republican crash of 2008, um, you know Obama got the one uh, percent, as I recall, of the uh, withholding from you know for FICA. Uh, suspended for a year. And what that did was it gave people an extra, you know, $100, $200, $500 a year to spend, and it immediately went into the economy. So, you know, if you're passing even relatively small amounts of money, I mean, back when, when George Herbert, when George W. Bush did his tax cut in 2001, uh, or maybe it was early 2002, Bernie Sanders kind of shamed him by saying, well, you should at least give every American 300 bucks. And so he did. And there was a measurable Im- impact of that, just that 300 bucks to everybody in the country that's all i'm talking about yeah i i I hear you but let me let me go here uh 
things aren't getting any cheaper. They never will. We've seen it. Rents go up. Rents everywhere. I'm not talking about housing rent. I'm talking about well, but but during the 40s, 50s, 60s, and 70s, while prices were going up, wages were going up faster. So functionally, things were getting cheaper. And then Bush and then Reagan came along and you know flipped the top tax rate from 74 percent down to 25 percent, and suddenly wages came to a screeching halt. And uh, but you know costs continued to explode. Wants to go up to 70 percent. Bernie wants to give away free this and that. And as a working guy, my incentive to work every day hard is to supply the things for my family other than the basics. They want to go on a vacation. They want to buy new clothes. They want to buy a better car. You know, they want to go to college. i got to earn that. Nobody's going to hand me that. And this generation of the next generation or the millenniums, they got to understand they got to get out and bust their ass and work. It's never going to stop. You yeah. always have to have people. Well, and I'm a big fan of the work ethic, too. But that said, I think that there are a couple of areas that we are treating as if they should be privatized that really should be part of the public sphere. And, and in particular, education and health care. These are things where every other developed country in the world provides every family in their country with all the health care they need for free and all the education that they need, all the way up to an MD for free. And, 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 and you've got the entire Republican Party saying, oh, we can't do that in America. We're too stupid no we're not too stupid but we maybe you know we can't give away the farm when we have people coming it's in not the farm it's education and health care in every other country in the world costa rica can do this i louise and i went down to costa rica last year for this for some filming for this uh documentary that we're doing and and the the cab driver you know who drove us out to the to the to the rainforest he was talking about how you know i said what do you like about costa rica and he said you know i have free health care and my family has free health care, and, and two of my three sons have gone to college for free. And he said, here in Costa Rica, we can do this. I don't know why you guys in America can't do it. And it's like, I don't know why either, except that we've got to have, you know, the, the Koch brothers have to be able to go from being worth $10 billion 10 years ago to being worth $80 billion now, somehow magically through the wonders of the tax code and all this kind of stuff. It's just, it's a, it, it is a screwed up system. Chris in Littleton, Colorado, you wanted to get back to the issue of autonomous trucks? Yeah, Tom. Two years ago, in October of 2016, they did an autonomous truck test from Fort Collins, Colorado, to Colorado Springs. It's about 120 miles, mm-hmm. and it was successful. Wow. And and <clears throat> about that time, I called in about uh, a movie on YouTube called "Do You Trust This Computer?" And that caller. He wants to get everybody to go and get a job. And unfortunately, there aren't going to be any jobs. Mm-hmm. It's all going to be done by machine. Well, and, and I mean, so far what we've seen is, uh, Andrew Ang points out in his book, just in the last uh, decade, I think a decade or decade and a half, 14 million jobs have gone to low-wage countries, mostly China, and then another five or six million jobs have been replaced by automation. Yep. And, and it, if you watch that movie... Richard Branson, Elon Musk, all of those guys, they believe in a uh, universal basic income. Yeah, and while Stephen Hawking never weighed in on UBI, to the best of my knowledge, he was outspoken in saying, don't trust that computer. You know, so uh, spot on. Chris, thank you for the information. It's great to hear from you. Jackson in Issaquah, Washington. Hey, Jackson, what's on your mind? 
Hey there. Uh, on the opposite end, I'm 26, so maybe your youngest caller of uh-huh. the day. Love the program. I, I always love that you source your opinions on facts. They're always based on that, and not just opinions where you find facts that support them. Uh, what I wanted to mention is I'm from St. Louis, Missouri, but I live in Washington now, and I mm-hmm. work as a server. And in Missouri, they've got a rule where you pay servers and tipped employees as low as three fifteen. Versus minimum wage up here is eleven fifty or just got raised to twelve. Right. A lot of times, people in Missouri and conservatives specifically will cite that in places like this, where the minimum wage goes up, rent cost goes up, and the price of things goes up. Mm-hmm. But based off my anecdotal experience, the price of things doesn't go up a lot. Even if you spend more percentage-wise on income, let's say I'm making three thousand a month versus two thousand a month, but my rent cost might even proportionally be higher. I still have more cash to work with. And so raising wages, just generally, percentage-wise, you spend more on the rent. Uh, If you have more money, you can do more things regardless. Yeah, it's kind of a common sense approach. I mean, and so the, the question in my mind, the, the thing that challenges me about universal basic income is you put it into place and the first couple of years you've got it, you're going to have a huge economic stimulus, but eventually that's going to wear off, it seems, or maybe I'm, maybe I'm missing something. No, I, I think you're spot. I, I wasn't uh, advocating for UBI yet. More so, I was just saying that wage difference is currently long term you might think about ubi but i think it's kind of infeasible until a lot of jobs actually get taken by automation to implement but in the short term really i think the battle we should fight is wages yeah yeah i'm with you Uh, jackson thank you for the call uh very well said and thanks for being our youngest caller so far today You've probably heard a lot of stories about drug cartels. They're all over the news. But the crime ring you've probably never heard of is one of the most dangerous in the world. They are the Mennonite mob. You heard right, Mennonites. Nearly 9% of them are kind, God-fearing people. But there's one group that has smuggled millions of dollars in narcotics from Mexico to Canada. This Wednesday at 10, 9 Central, WGN America premieres the new TV series, Pure, based on the true events of the Mennonite mob. The show is about Noah Funk, the newly elected Mennonite pastor who is determined to rid his community of the drug cartel. But he finds himself way in over his head. And the good pastor, along with his wife, will do some very bad things, all in the name of protecting their family. Think of Pure as Breaking Bad meets Witness meets Narcos. Get hooked on Pure! The series premieres Wednesday at 10, 9 Central, only on WGN America. Available on DirecTV, Channel 307, Dish Channel 239, or check your local cable listings for the channel in your area. Boy, a lot going on in the news and in the world today. Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez is out saying we really need to roll back the Reagan tax cut. You know, the top tax rate was 91% from essentially, you know, World War II, well, really the Great Depression from 1933 forward until uh, 1967 when Lyndon Johnson dropped it down to 74%. And then Reagan came into office in 81, and uh, I think by 84 or 85, he had dropped that down to 25% from 74%. And she's pointing out, hey, you know, we had really, really good growth. The middle class was actually growing faster than the billionaire class during those 30 years that we had a top tax rate that was over 50%. I'm 
almost 40 years. And the average CEO only took 30 times, only 30 times what the average worker made, whereas right now the number is between 271 and 10,000 times, depending on the industry you're looking at. And uh, isn't it a good thing? to have a more equal society. On the line with us is Julio Rivera, the editorial director at the Reactionary Times, and a columnist with Newsmax, right-wing news and politics. ReactionaryDimes.com is the website. His Twitter handle is oh yeah, it's Julio. Julio, welcome back. Hey, Tom. Happy New Year. Well, Happy New Year to you, Julio. So what is good about CEOs making 500 times what their workers make and the rich getting obscenely richer and working people seeing their paychecks decline? Well, you know, just the way that you're framing the question, let me just say this. First off, you know, in private business, if a CEO wants to pay himself exponentially more than his workers and he's created that business, he does have a right to do that. But let me tell you something. This whole Ocasio-Cortez tax is a little bit of a mirage. I mean, people that are truly rich, you know, making over $10 million a year, a lot of that is off of investments. And the capital gains tax is still going to be 20%. So those people aren't necessarily affected. The people Reagan that said that the capital poor. gains tax should be exactly the same as the average income tax. In fact, he campaigned no, on that, and he actually, actually got that in proposed. 1985. Okay, but that's not what we're talking about here. What she's proposing, what is it, 70% on people who are earning, making new income salaries. Over 10 million over a year, 10 yeah. 10 million a year, exactly. Yeah. So, I What's mean, wrong with that? That's not necessarily fair. Those people are still technically, in a sense, I know you're going to laugh this off, but in a sense, they're working class because they're earning, they're actually working, providing a service for the money that they're being paid. 10 and million a year? I have two, huh? 10 okay. million a year? 10 million, well, still, they still earned it. And the issue is, listen, government... I think we have very different definitions of earned. Julio. Uh, but the question, well, I mean, you know, what, what is wrong? What, who can't live on $10 million a year? I mean, what's wrong with saying, okay, you know. It's not $10 million a year. I mean, it's, and they're going to get hit for the first $10 million, 37% of their money, and then everything beyond $10 million, 70% of their money. So if you have a $20 million salary, you're going to take home less than $7 million. Aww. But still, I'm heartbroken. You, know, you worked for it, you know, and the, the no, this is, is the, the whole war. point, Julio, is, you know, we had in the United States for 40 years a period of time when the middle class, the working class in America, their wages and benefits were actually growing faster than the wages of the top 1%. That all mm. came to a screaming, screeching halt with Reaganomics. And the principal part of Reaganomics that killed the middle class and what we saw, in fact, in 1980, when Reagan was elected, the average price of a home in the United States is around $80,000. Now it's around $230,000. Um, the average salary has not changed since then. And the no, reason for that is because all that money has gone to the top 1%. No, under Trump, wages are up. But listen, this part of the reason why people have an issue giving the government that much money is because it's estimated that about one over 1.2 trillion dollars a year is wasted and these are the kind of things that they're wasting out of 920 million for unnecessary printing costs unused vehicles this has nothing to do with the argument julio yes it does if if you want to if you want to cut the pentagon go for it but that's a completely different conversation we're talking about trying to balance the economy by by discouraging rich people from taking enormous amounts of money out of their company so that they will do what they were doing before Reagan, which is leave that money in the company and pay their workers better. No, that's not the solution. The solution is, and this is something that nobody has addressed yet, is really the wasteful spending. I'd like to see Trump this year, this legislative session, address 
spending reform because that's really we wouldn't that, have to that do literally so has nothing Julio to do with what we're talking about julio are you are you changing the subject because you're losing the argument no liberal progressives always are trying to find a way to take more money from the taxpayer instead of trying to figure out ways where we could be more i am trying to taxes do two things they fund the government which is the argument you're making right now and they alter behavior there's a reason why we have higher taxes on cigarettes and alcohol than we do on carrots and lettuce shouldn't be trying to conduct sociological experiments this is not an experiment it's already been done we know for 52 million dollars a year chimpanzee habitat Really, I, I'm supposed to want to. We know, Julio, that when you have a high tax rate, wealthy people pay their employees better because they can't take the money out because they don't want to pay taxes on it. What's no, wrong that's with that? Not necessarily true. Listen, you're going off of information. The business. I'm going off U.S. Census data. Years ago, years ago, you're talking. We're in a different economy nowadays. The fact of the matter is, if we open the door for something like this today, seventy percent proposal on income over 10 million will be tomorrow's proposal of 90 percent for all income over 2 million it's just going to get worse and that's why we have to fight back and roll back so again that's a non-argument argument that's absurd you know it's like saying you know well well you know we, we should not have i mean fill in the blank because somebody might what abuse was, it what it's was the that- federal income tax rate in 1915 and look at the way that it's progressed over the years. The more it was, ninety-one percent on income over in today's dollars, about three hundred and sixty thousand dollars, which is frankly where I think it should be. I think that Alexandria Ocasio Cortez is way too generous with rich people, and I think the seventy percent tax rate should kick in. You know, the, when Reagan came into office, that seventy-four percent tax rate kicked in when you made over about three hundred and twenty thousand dollars a year in today's money, and I think well, that that's where it should be. Well, listen, the good thing is she doesn't she can't even identify the three branches or units of government or whatever it was. That this has, the, you know, a nonsense so no and B, this has nothing to do with that. Passing. When you resort to personal attacks on people, it just tells Tom, everybody you've lost the argument. Tom, I don't know why you guys have hitched your saddle to this woman. You know, she's destroying your party because she's saying so what's true. And the moderate wing is coming out against her. Tom Perez is a radical. So I am still not hearing from you, Julio, why it's a bad idea to raise taxes on rich people. I have not heard an argument for that. Because the government's just going to continue to waste that money on other. They're going to find other. Well, right now, Trump is borrowing a trillion dollars this year to waste on things. You know, if you've got a problem, undo Trump's tax cuts. That's not Trump. That's the legislators. There's there's progressive. Well, it's the Republican tax cuts. You know, I agree with you. It's the the entire Republican Party. Well, the Repub- the Democrats and the Republicans. Listen, it's, it's on both of them. No, the, not a single Democrat voted for Trump's tax cuts. Not one. Well, they should have. In the House or the Senate. Because it actually did something for the American people. Listen, I'm talking about... It did something for the billionaires. There's no doubt about that. The Koch brothers made an extra billion dollars in a year. Well, good for them. But you Donald know Trump made money. money. He, you know, he, has, he said to everybody at, at Mar-a-Lago, I just made you all richer. Listen, you may not feel it, and maybe I may not feel it, and people in California and certain blue states may not feel the effects of the Trump tax cut plan, but that was a gift to his base, which was really the middle of the country. And no, that was not a gift to his base. That was, he was screwing his base by cutting taxes on rich people and, you know, thus consequently reducing wages for low-income people. I don't know. Wages are up, Tom. Yeah, for the moment. Julio Rivera, editorial director of the Reactionary Times, columnist at Newsmax, right-wing news and politics, reactionarytimes.com. His Twitter handle is, oh yeah, it's Julio. Julio, thanks for dropping by. Thank you, Tom. Good talking with you. We'll be right back.
Richard in Santa Rosa, California. Hey, Richard, what's on your mind today? Hello, Tom. Uh, I was going to uh, dovetail off of what you were talking about, uh, Juan, about the, uh, the the tax rate, which, uh, you know, I always find myself in this particular argument with uh, conservatives. And one of the things I always tell, and, and it's always a misnomer, because when, they, when somebody hears 90% tax rate, they think off of your gross income. And I try to explain, especially on the business, this is your net income, not off of the of the. So what what that means is, is I the way I frame it, I said, listen, capitalism is the name of the game. Our government is a sentinel of capitalism. That's it. I said, so you have two choices: you either participate in capitalism because that's what it needs to survive is con- consumption, or the government will force you to 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 participate through taxation. So how you mitigate your tax liabilities? I'm a, I'm an SBA lender. I would do SBA loans for small businesses, and you see this all the time. When you expense things, if you are making that much net income, which is what the ta- what you would be taxed upon, that net income, whether it be a C corp or S corp, whatever, um, it, um, is mitigated by capital investment in your company. So right. increased inventories, uh, equipment, uh, more employees, like you were mentioning, is the thing that mitigates that risk. So quite often, if you elect to let's say buy a P, let's say more supplies to ramp up for the following year. By the way, if you're doing that well, you know you're doing that well because your retained earnings are so good that maybe you want to ramp up for the following year and buy more inventory. Well, who do you think is happy about more inventory being purchased? His suppliers, right? The, right. the business owner's suppliers. Everything multiplies through the system and works, and that's why it's... Right, so a high tax rate encouraging business people to keep their money in their company and, and encouraging companies to keep their, keep their money, to invest their money in their employees and in new products and in new ways to produce product increases productivity, which increases the wealth of all of us. Um, rather than just encouraging very, very wealthy people to skim everything off the top. Very well said, Richard. Thank you very much. George in Chicago. Hey, George. Uh, hi, Tom. Um, I was just reflecting on your discussion with Mr. Revere, and I started picking through things in my own mind that cost vastly more now today than they did in the past. Just a few examples. Uh, my parents, both of whom were World War II veterans, moved into a tract development that was built in the 50s after the war, uh, an all-duplex development, and with a single-car garage, side drive, two bedrooms, living room, bathroom, and kitchen, they paid about $10,000. That same type house in the same development today, as long as it hasn't had any kind of significant upgrades, will cost you ninety dollars to $100,000. Back in the... 70s, you could buy a pretty nice car for about four thousand dollars. Oh, I remember when the Ford Mustang came nice out; it was it was two thousand dollars for a Ford Mustang. Yeah, it was in like '64, I think. And now, if you want to buy a decent new car, you're talking twenty-five thousand dollars minimum. Yeah. Um, I. Well, uh, wages have not gone up. Quite, yeah, and wages haven't gone up. And I remember quite clearly. I won't mention the name of the firm, but it's a. It's a nationally known hamburger chain that used to sell two of their very top-of-the-line burgers with everything on it for a dollar ninety-eight. That same location, same company, now sells two for six dollars. That's right. three times as much. My wages haven't gone up three times in twenty years. In fact, they've been basically stagnant. And like most American workers, I'm paying more for my insurance and having to fund most of my retirement myself. There's no more fixed fixed uh, benefit pension funds anymore. We're down to like 22% of the workforce has them. And we're all at the vagaries of the market, which is controlled by the billionaires. And 
you know, we're risking everything to try and fund our retirements if we have any disposable income, which half the population doesn't. Right. Yeah. Now it's it, this is, and this is the consequence of Reaganomics, and I think that this is starting to sink into Americans. George, thank you for the call. Very well said. I, I really think it's starting to sink in that that we, we basically Reaganomics has screwed the average American. And uh, well, I, I, end of end of rant, I guess. Ron in Springville, New York. Hey, Ron, what's up? Hi. Um, I was just wondering, what has the shutdown cost us so far? They're just starting to really estimate that seriously. In fact, there was a piece in the Financial Times today suggesting that the uh, the initial estimates of the cost of the shutdown were uh, off by 50%. They were low by 50%. That, that it's costing us uh, about twice as much as we thought. Um, they're, they're, they're talking about the possibility that, for example, um, total GDP activity for the United States for the first quarter has already been reduced by four-tenths of one percent, and in fact, 0.41 percent. And if they, and that's just, you know, we're just, what, two weeks into it, um, you know, in, in this year. Um, so if this shutdown continues into this first quarter, if, if it continues for the whole month of January, for example, um, it could shave a, a, you know, a full percent off uh, GDP for the quarter. And, and if that happens, then I think you're going to start seeing very, very consequential effects on things like, you know, the, the stock market. I know, because uh, like the last shutdown, when, when the Tea Party shut us down, that was like in 20 billion or something like yeah, that. Yeah, you're talking 2013 when Ted Cruz did that over uh, over Obamacare, uh, trying to kill Obamacare. And uh, yeah, it was it was substan- a substantial amount of money. Ron, thank you for the call. This, you know, and this is the conversation that broadly is not being had. But it's, it's a real, real issue. Everyone's talking about the decline in stock values over the last few months. If you've been listening to Lynette Zhang's YouTube show, you probably aren't surprised by the fall. Her fact-based research on markets, currencies, and economics is second to none. And her presentations have pointed to most every major downfall we've recently seen in the U.S. economy. Her video titled Just Before the Crash showed people the exact patterns to look out for and now has over 210,000 views and counting. Lynette Zhang has been on my show and works with my friends at ITM Trading. I highly recommend looking them up as they are pioneers in creating wealth protection strategies with gold and silver. If you're a strategic investor looking to protect your wealth or just hedge against the most volatile markets since 2007, then call my friends at ITM Trading at one own gold Ask for their free gold protection guide and join the top 1% who are now accumulating very specific types, dates, and qualities of physical gold and silver. Call 1-888-OWN-GOLD. That's 1-888-O-W-N-G-O-L-D. So let's check in with Talk Media News and find out what's going on in the world today. This report brought to you by GoatsfortheOldGoat.com and Ellen Ratner's new book, Loving What You Do. And speaking of Ellen Ratner, she's on the line with us. Hey, Ellen, what's going on in the world today? Thank you so much. Okay, well, there's a lot going on, of course. We still don't know what's going on with Theresa May because they haven't had a final vote yet, as far as I can tell. Mm -hmm. Uh, And that may happen late tonight uh, in terms of whether they approve of her or not and whether they say no confidence. So we'll see. Okay. Uh, If you don't have a Senate or governor's job, well, you can join one of the networks because Claire McCaskill is joining MSNBC and John Kasich from the great state of Ohio, which is where I'm from, of course, uh, will be joining CNN. 
So there you have it. And, you know, you can get a job and they'll pay you lots of money, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> and, and give you okay. a platform that you could leverage into future runs for president. Well, that's right. And as you know, Sherrod Brown may run for president. He's also from the great state of Ohio. Mm. And as you know, my crazy cousin ran against him, but yeah. uh, didn't make it, thank God. And of course, I supported Sherrod Brown. But the president, I don't know. But anything's better than what we got now. So what, what am I going to I think say, Sherrod right? Brown would make a great president. I, I'd vote well, for I'd him in a heartbeat. Correct. I'd campaign for him in a heartbeat. Okay, well, so would a lot of people I know, so me too. And, yep. of course, I would support Sherrod Brown. Okay, so now then the question of is, will the shutdown, I'm hearing via the grapevine, that the shutdown might meet the goal of reducing the government, the size of the government, and that's why Trump may be supporting it. It's more than just a shutdown. It may be reducing the size of the government. And, of course, Trump campaigned on that and went on that. And, therefore, he's supporting it. Did you see the article that was published over in the Daily Caller a couple days ago by a guy who claimed that he was a senior administration official? No, I didn't. I mean, I do read the Daily Caller, but remind me. This is on Monday. He said, we do not want most employees to return to work because we are working better without them. Now that we are shut down, not only are we able to identify and eliminate much of the sabotage and waste, we're finally working on the president's agenda. Wasteful government agencies are fighting for relevance, but they will lose. Now is the time to deliver historic change by cutting them down forever. Sounds to me like Stephen Miller. Well, the other thing they're saying is that only the government workers only work 20% of the time, which is not my experience in Washington. Right. Mine neither. I mean, this is the stuff that is being fueled by people like the Koch brothers, who basically just hate government because it regulates their ability to be profitable by dumping poisons in the atmosphere from their refineries. Exactly. Exactly. Okay. So now then, there's been some studies on the impact of the shutdown. So far, the shutdown is 0.1%, but it's expected to double, even triple, maybe. And so the shutdown has not caused problems yet, but it really, really will, say, a lot of people. Because there are all these, in addition to the government workers, there's government contractors. One of the airlines said that they're going to lose, I think it's Delta, they're going to lose something like $25 million because government employees won't be flying on them. Right. You know, Thursday between noon and 3 p.m., 80 to 90 percent of all members of Congress pass through those two airports, Dulles and Reagan. I wonder if the TSA will have anything to say to them. Well, that would be very interesting, of course, because TSA needs to say something. Listen, I have to take a plane uh, on Thursday night and I'm going to get to the airport three hours early because of the TSA lines. Yeah. Yeah. And now the vice president of the airline or the traffic controllers union has come out and said that uh, within a week she would not fly. This is an air traffic controller saying if this continues for another week, I would not fly. scary, to say the least. Okay, now the president has had active duty forces. They are going to remain on the U.S.-Mexico border till the 30th of September, which, of course, is when a new budget, the budget turns into a pumpkin on the 1st of October. And so we don't know how many people that is. We know it's in the thousands, though. And we also know that the president wants to put up them to put up a wire wall while they're there. Amazing. Can you believe it? Okay. Also, a new caravan might be heading to the United States, and it will be going through Guatemala. It is from Honduras, and these are people who are saying that they want to seek asylum. Yeah, and it's like 80 or 90 percent women and children. Right. (laughs) Absolutely. 
So the Senate was going to defy President Trump on Russia, but it decided not to. They needed the 60 votes necessary for cloture in order to get a vote on the floor. They didn't get it. And therefore, Trump can uh, continue on to reduce what is going on in Russia. And he can. So he gets to dial back the sanctions on Deripaska's uh, steel and aluminum business. Companies that he can dial back the sanctions on. Amazing. They couldn't they couldn't find seven Republicans with 13 Republicans. But no, they couldn't find them, apparently. Wow. That's amazing. Yeah. Crazy. Now, ISIS has claimed responsibility. The question is whether there's three people or four people that were killed in Syria. But I thought we just wanted Syria. Right. And in fact, uh, about an hour after three or four U.S. soldiers were, were killed in Syria, uh, Mike Pence said we have defeated ISIS in Syria. Uh, Give me a break. Get a clue, Mr. Pence. Yeah. Uh, Ellen Ratner with Talk Media News brought to you by Goats for the Old Goat.com and Ellen's new book, Loving What You Do. Thank you, Ellen. Thank you. You're listening to Tom Hartman. It's time for Geeky Science. Indeed, last year was the hottest for the planet's oceans since global records began back in 1958. We have now discovered, we didn't actually realize this until the last few years, that the oceans are absorbing about 90% of all the heat that we're generating on the Earth by burning fossil fuels. It's going right into the oceans. It's creating huge dead zones. Fish are migrating north to try to get into cooler waters. It's causing things like the red tides down in Florida. And it's causing the oceans to expand. Warm water takes up more space. And so it's causing problems that they have, for example, in Miami Beach, where they're having these tides that, have, that are not tides soaking the countryside. This was published in the journal uh, Advances in Atmospheric Sciences on Wednesday. And the top five years of ocean heat have come in da, 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 the last five years. I mentioned something about uh, William Barr. If you go to the New York Times, if you have a subscription to the New York Times, you can search these old papers. And David Johnston, I wonder if that's David K. Johnston, wrote a piece on December 25th, 1992. It was a screaming headline across the entire top of the New York Times, right? The front page headline, all caps, Bush pardons six in Iran affair, aborting a Weinberger trial, prosecutor assails cover-up. It's the exact headline. And the article then goes on. It says, Mr. Weinberger was scheduled to stand trial on January 5th on charges he lied to Congress about his knowledge of the arms sales to Iran and efforts by other countries to help underwrite the Nicaraguan rebels, a case that was expected to focus on Mr. Weinberger's private notes that contain references to George Herbert Walker Bush's endorsement of the secret shipments to Iran. You get this? Weinberger was about to rat out the president. The president was still the president. The story continues. In one remaining facet of the inquiry, the independent prosecutor, Lawrence Walsh, plans to review a 1986 campaign diary kept by Mr. Bush. Mr. Walsh has characterized the president's failure to turn over the diary until now as misconduct. But in a single stroke, Mr. Bush swept away one conviction, three guilty pleas, and two pending cases, virtually decapitating what was left of Mr. Walsh's efforts, which began in 1986. Mr. Walsh bitterly condemned President Bush's action, charging that, quote, the Iran-Contra cover-up, which has continued for more than six years, has now been completed. The prosecutor charged that Mr. Weinberger's efforts to hide his notes may have, quote, forestalled impeachment proceedings against President Reagan. 
and formed part of a pattern of, quote, deception and obstruction. On December 11th, Mr. Walsh said he discovered misconduct in Mr. Bush's failure to turn over what the prosecutor said were the president's own highly re relevant contemporaneous notes, despite repeated requests for such documents. As Mr. Walsh said, in light of President Bush's own misconduct, we are gravely concerned about his decision to pardon others who lied to Congress and obstructed official investigation. And then this from the same month, this is from December 11th, uh, 1992. It's an op-ed in the New York Times. It's titled, Mr. Barr's Cloud Growing Darker. By the way, it was William Barr who was attorney general at the time that uh, George Herbert Walker Bush did those pardons, which ended the special counsel's investigation of Iran-Contra. And this is just a couple of weeks earlier. Could Attorney General William Barr be trusted to produce a credible examination of his own administration's possible criminal aid to Iraq before the Persian Gulf War? The answer is worse than no. Far from allaying public doubts about the Bush administration improprieties, this squalid exercise inflames them. And this is about whether George Herbert Walker Bush was uh, giving chemical weapons and other things like that to Saddam Hussein and calling it, quote, agricultural aid. It was a major scandal, and it got shut down. Again, William Barr, the attorney general at the time, shut this stuff down with, with cover-ups and pardons. Expect to see the same if Barr is made attorney general. It's just that simple. Ken in Toledo, Ohio. Hey, Ken, what's up? Well, I hear him talk about how much health care and education is going to cost. What I never hear him say is, how much money do we lose because people are afraid to move on from their job, open up their businesses, because they have to stay there to get that health care? Yeah. No, it's a huge drag on the economy. The fact that we've got employer-provided health care prevents people from going out and starting their own companies. Absolutely. I, I watched it. I worked 30 years in a UAW shop, cradle to grave, with insurance, and I saw many guys that had great ideas but couldn't leave the factory floor because they couldn't walk away from the insurance. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. And it's one of the very strongest arguments for universal health care. Ken, thank you. Paul in Glenside, Pennsylvania. Hey, Paul, what's up? Hi, Tom. I wanted to talk about some of the uh, ripple effects into the economy from the government shutdown. My daughter is a U.S. Nurse Corps scholar, which means she has a full paid scholarship for nursing school, which she graduated from. Mm -hmm. uh, she just got a job offer uh, in another state. We're in Pennsylvania, and she has a Pennsylvania professional nursing license, which required an FBI background check, fingerprinting, along with a whole lot of other professional licenses that require FBI background checks with fingerprinting. Right. She now needs a new license because her job offer is in Delaware, which is very close to where we live in Philadelphia. It's just almost over the border. Right. She can't get the job because the FBI isn't processing the fingerprinting from the state police of Delaware. Wow. Each state that you would go into as a nurse has their own professional licensing. Now, you multiply that out with doctors, pharmacists, medical technicians, any place where there's controlled substances, the DEA is involved. That means every hospital in the United States that's trying to hire somebody, once this shutdown started, won't be able to because they can't get FBI background checks done. And that's every incredible. single state has professional licensing that not only goes there, it goes beyond that. Wherever you have any kind of critical security situation and uh, much of a, a national security state, we've become 
So many occupations require the FBI to fingerprint you, put your fingerprints on file, or check them against existing fingerprints to see if you are whatever, yeah. you know, a Russian spy. Has, has your daughter been told that there is a, a particular period of time, or is it basically yeah, everything's on hold until the shutdown's over? Well, everything's on hold. Unfortunately for her, she's got a job in a place where, uh, to meet the requirements of the U.S. Nurse Corps, she has to go to uh, an area that's in dire need of, of mm -hmm. nurses. So she can't just go to like, the nicest hospital in downtown Philadelphia, that, which is one of the reasons why she's in Delaware. They're willing to wait for her. They, they love her. They want her to be a part of their staff. So they're willing to wait for her. The problem is she's broke. She, she's yeah. a brand new student. So she, she got a, a local job with a, a home nursing organization. And yeah. Uh, and thank you, Paul, for sharing your story. I mean, that's what this country is made up. You know, there's millions and millions of stories of individuals who are struggling against the damage that Donald Trump and the Republican Party and Mitch McConnell in particular are doing to this country. Why are they harming us? I think this is a question that really needs to be asked. Why are Trump and the Republicans harming Americans? We'll continue the conversation tomorrow. In the meantime, don't forget democracy is not a spectator sport. It requires you. Get out there, get active, tag, you're it. We'll see you tomorrow. You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com.